Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for the opportunity each week to pause, to take a deep breath, to enter into the rest that you promised to us on Sabbath. Lord, each of us come with different weeks, some full of joy, some full of sorrow, some full of complexity that we are yet to figure out. And yet in this moment, we invite your spirit that has been with us, whether we're at home, whether we're out on a walk, that you will speak to each of us. Father, we ask for your spirit to come and to abide with us, to challenge and to comfort us for your sake and that we might be more like Jesus. This is our prayer in his name. Amen. So all of us have people on our speed dial that we call on certain occasions. If you're a parent, you may have your children on speed dial so that you can be in contact with them as soon as you possibly need to. If you uh, play basketball, you might have your coach on speed dial because you may need to do drills at a moment's notice. If you're in a relationship, I'm sure you have your boyfriend or your girlfriend on speed dial. Now, if you needed someone to help you with backcountry search and rescue, you wouldn't want to have me on speed dial because I'm pretty useless at getting my bearings if I'm in the woods. If I'm in an urban area, if there's buildings, uh, I can help you navigate. But if we're in the woods, I'll be of no use to you whatsoever. When I was 17, I was actually part of Master Guide, which is a program that you take when you're part of Pathfinders. And if you're watching and you're thinking, Andreas, what's Master Guide? It's really just a program that you do as part of Pathfinders, which is a co-ed Boy Scout type program. And so we went to do our Master Guide training. And when we got there, one of the exercises we had to do, and this is why I'm holding this thing and making all of this noise, we were given a map. And we were given a map and we were given instructions. Uh, We were supposed to navigate to a point on the map and we were supposed to rendezvous maybe an hour later. Now, I thought I'd listen to all the instructions about how to use a map. And we were also given one of these things. Maybe we can uh, get a close-up of this. We were also given this, a compass. So we had a map and we had a compass. And we were supposed to navigate to a certain point and we're supposed to do it within an hour. So I took off with my map and my compass, ready to find our rendezvous point. But an hour later, after trundling around the English countryside and watching the sun slipping down past the horizon, I knew I was in trouble. Although I had the map, Because I didn't know how to use the compass, I had no sense of where I was. And of course, if you know how to navigate with a map, you would know that it doesn't matter if you have a topographical map that gives you information. If you don't know how to use a compass, it won't do you much good. We all know that a map gives you directions, but a compass enables you to follow those directions. A map gives you directions, but a compass enables you to follow those directions. Now, of course, a map and a compass don't compete. They are two parts of the same tool. A good map provides the lay of the land, and a compass uh, works to orient you within that map. 
For example, here in Southeast Washington, in Walla Walla, I could say the Columbia River is west of us, and that would be true, but if I was to look at a map, it would not clearly depict where you are in relation to the Columbia River. If it's west of us, that means nothing if you don't know where you are. And a map like this map, which is a good map, when it's oriented, it points towards north. And then a compass will line you up with true north, giving you direction so you know where you are on the map. And this motif is important for us as we go into today's sermon. And we're continuing in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the seventh century prophet, an Israelite prophet who lived during a time when the people of God had departed far from God's directions for their life. They had been led by a succession of wicked rulers, and they had been taken off the path that God dreamed for them. And they stood on the edge of a cliff, about to tumble over after years of bad directions. Now, the worst of these kings, the very worst of these kings, was a ruler named King Manasseh, who committed gross and immoral perversions, including, but not limited to, witchcraft, murder, and sacrificing his own children to pagan idols. Manasseh was so evil, my friends, so evil, he would make Darth Vader and Cruella Deville blush. And we find his story in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Jeremiah was born, according to scholars, in the last decade of mad Manasseh. Fifty years of grinding wickedness had led Israel so far from God that they were not only aware and didn't know where they were on the map of God's dreams of their life. They couldn't point to you where they were on the map, but in fact, they were so far from where God wanted them to be, they didn't even know a map existed. So here, Jeremiah enters the story, and he tells us about this time in the history of Israel. What's interesting is that this group of people, unaware of the map of God for their life, don't recognize that there's actually going to be a moment in which everything changes. And that moment comes when the boy king, Josiah, at the age of eight years old, ascends to the throne after his father, uh, Ammon, is killed. And you can find that story in 2 Kings 22 to 23 or in 2 Chronicles 34 to 35. Second Kings, excuse me, Kings and Chronicles overlap in the stories that they tell. So Josiah enters into the story, and when he enters into the story, he is bringing good news. Josiah is the blossoming almond branch. Josiah coming into the story moves Israel from 55 years of winter to spring. Josiah heralds good news and life. And when Josiah comes into uh, the kingship of Israel, there are shoots of life. There are shoots of good news that start to push out of the dead, hard ground that is Jerusalem. And Josiah in his rule makes a beeline to the historical center of the community, which was the temple, the place of worship. Now the temple 
in Jerusalem was the architectural evidence of the importance of God in the life of the people. The temple was important for another reason, because uh, worship is important. All the lines of life crisscrossed in the temple. Meaning was established in the temple. Values were created there. Worship defines life. And if worship is corrupt, then life will be corrupt. And so Josiah comes into this time and he begins a reform. He begins this reform in the eighth year of his reign when he is only 16 years old. And that reform begins as a personal reform when he commits his life to God. And then 10 years later, after his personal awakening, in the 12th year, he begins uh, 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 to come into a consciousness that it cannot be only a personal reform, but it must become a national reform. And so King Josiah, and I just imagine this, he comes and he power washes all the accoutrements of government. King Josiah scrubs the graffiti of immorality. He scours the implements of corruption. He sweeps away the magician. He banishes prostitution. He tears down the pagan altars and he brings about reformation for Israel. And then in the 18th year of his reign, when he is 26 years old, one day, in the dark recesses of the temple, as they're cleaning out some things, as they're collecting some money, an event happens that changes everything in the life of Israel. Let's read it together in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 14. Now, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Helkiah, the priest, found the book of the law the Lord, given, the Lord had given by Moses. So I imagine Hilkiah, this aged priest, finding some scraps in a dusty corner of the temple, unsure of what the scroll is that he is holding. And then all of a sudden, my friends, imagine this with me, all of a sudden, Israel, who have been trekking for 50 years, almost in a recapitulation of their time coming out of Egypt, trekking in a desert, unsure of where they're going, directionless, all of a sudden, the beckoning voice of God comes to them and they stumble on a map. And the map, we're told, has a name. The name was the book of Deuteronomy, the story of God's love. And the book of Deuteronomy, just like all of the Torah, were divine directions about how to live life to the fullest, how to live life purposefully, how to live life in anticipation of the fullness of the kingdom of God. And they find this book. It's a moral topography with directions for how to live and to worship intelligently. Now, the story can also be picked up in 2 Kings, and we're going to read it, because when they find this scroll, something incredible happens. Read it with me. Now, the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. 
Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And all the people took a stand for the, gov- uh, the covenant. It's an incredible picture. It's a picture of Josiah as king standing as an efficient in a ceremony, in a wedding where God stands on one side and Israel stands on another side and they make promises to one another about how they're going to conduct their relationship from then on. So Josiah stands there as an efficient and the way of God is established. I can imagine all the people celebrating. They are dizzy with delight and justice begins to perfume the air. The orphans, the widows, the immigrants are taken care of once again. God is honored. The temple is established. And yet, if the cyclical stories of Israel's history, where they were not as consistent as they should have been, If we are uh, aware of how Israel often lives, we will not be tempted to think that they will sail into the horizon and live happily ever after, even after this wedding. And then Jeremiah uh, comes to us because as soon as Josiah dies, as soon as he dies after the wedding, after a good honeymoon, As soon as Josiah dies, the marriage turns sour. And this is Jeremiah coming in now, commenting on the situation. He says things like this in Jeremiah 4, uh, 3, and also verse 30. Plow your fields. He's telling the people of Israel who have departed and are now in a sour marriage with God to plow the fields, to plow your heart, which has become so hard. He says things like this um, as he watches them pretending that everything is okay. And we've all been in situations like that when you can be in a relationship and both of you know it's not working, but you just pretend. And so this is Jeremiah's words to them, cutting. He says, and you, what do you think you're up to? Dressing up in party clothes, putting on lipstick and rouge and mascara. Your primping goes for nothing. Jeremiah is scathing in his rebuke. Jeremiah insists that if they're going to get out of the mess that they find themselves in, they have to discover the old parts. And he speaks about that in Jeremiah 6. They have to find the right route because they don't know where they're going. The wedding was fine. The marriage is on the rocks. And he reminds them, go back to the old parts. Jeremiah is telling them, find the map. Go back to the map. Read the map. And the map that he is talking about is the scrolls of Deuteronomy. Here's a rub, my friends. Although Josiah officiated a successful, a delightful, an intoxicating wedding, any married person can tell you that a wedding doth not a marriage make. You can have an incredible wedding. You can have a memorable wedding, but it does not guarantee a marriage which is going to be successful. And Josiah had given them a beautiful wedding. Conspicuous crime had stopped. 
Under Josiah's reign, you could go to the temple without being robbed and without being murdered. That's a good thing. Under Josiah's reign, when you went to give your sacrifice, you didn't need to worry that there would be pagan gods and idols being sold on the roadside. Under Josiah's reign, you didn't need to worry that the priests were going to uh, be uh, corrupt when you went to the temple. They were all good things. Bad religion was tossed out. Immoral worship was banned. But like Eugene Peterson says, getting rid of evil does not make people good. And we know that. You don't need to be a theologian to understand the truth of this statement. There are plenty of cemeteries full of people who can do no evil but that does not mean that they are good. Getting rid of evil does not make people good. That's what Peterson says. The reform under Josiah, as good and as necessary as it was, in hindsight, was only skin deep. Why do I say that? I say that because the people of Israel, in essence, had a map, but no compass. They had a great wedding and a failing marriage. And this is why our scripture reading in Jeremiah chapter 7 paints such a dreary picture. And I'm going to read it for you. Jeremiah chapter 7 from verse 3 to verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgments between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in the place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. God is pleading with them, pleading with them. He's saying, this is not working. Don't follow these other idols to your hurt. It's the same message that we spoke about in Jeremiah 2. Don't go to the broken cisterns. They cannot satisfy you and give you what you want. Don't go to the false idols because they will hurt you. And then Jeremiah continues, um, intoning the voice of God. He says, behold, you trust in lying words. Verse 8, that cannot profit. Verse 9, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all of these abominations. So when Jeremiah stands at the gate, he does not give a word of congratulation. There is nothing that he is uh, happy about when it comes to the relationship between God and Israel, when it comes to these people who have lost their map and are not using their compass. Jeremiah doesn't care that they're coming to the temple, that they're buying religious books about how to sacrifice, that they're following the viral videos they see on uh, Israeli YouTube about how to be a good Israeli and how to be a good Israelite, excuse me. He does not care. And although the worship is popular and enthusiastic, and everyone is saying, this is God's temple, this is God's temple, this is God's temple, 
Jeremiah offers only a sharp rebuke. He says it's all a sham. He says all of your religious activity is a joke. He says that you're going through the motions. You're mumbling cliches, but your life is not changed. Jeremiah is in essence saying this, that they said the right words, but they were not right. That they were excellent actors, but their lives were not in line with their um, acting. And so although Josiah's reform was good, although Josiah's reform was much needed after mad Manasseh, it was not enough. It was not enough because a life of following God is more than saying the right things or coming to the right place. A life of following God is a life in which we pursue love. It's a life in which we pursue mercy, obedience, and passionate faith. And we know that coming together uh, for those of you who attend the in-person service or for those who are watching and so the coming together is digital and distance. But when we come together in worship, when we listen to music, we read the word. What is good about it is we're given fresh vigor, fresh hope, and a fresh vision of the kingdom of God in which to go out and live it. But like the theologian, the Canadian theologian, Justin Bieber, once said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than hanging out in a garage makes you a car. And so Jeremiah, passionate, life lived to the full, experiencing the full breath of his emotion, calls the presence, of words, uh, the presence and the words of Israel about the temple and God's presence a fat lie. Jeremiah calls and says that uh, God is not there in what you're doing. But let me say something else before I continue. What Jeremiah is not saying, what Jeremiah is not suggesting is that we just toss out the baby with the bathwater. He's not saying that we should bin places of worship, that we should cease going to church, that they should not go to the temple. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't gather on Sabbath. What he is saying and what he is trying to get them to understand is that a life properly oriented after God, mapped after God, sees the temple, the church, the weekly gathering as a means to an end, sees the doors of the church as the place in which we exit after being given a fresh vision of the kingdom of God to go and live a loving, merciful, and just life that fragrances our community and invites people into the life of faith. And Jeremiah uh, knows that right now the people of Israel are not living such a life. His accusations of them are scathing. He accuses Israel of having turned the temple into a den of robbers. And you know a den of robbers? You go out... You rob, you steal, you thief from people, and then you come back to your den because you know your den is the safe place. It's a place where you've booby-trapped it, so if anyone comes to your den who shouldn't be there, they can be taken care of. It's the place where you have an armed guard at the door to keep out people you don't want. The den becomes the place you retreat to after you have done your dirty work. And Jeremiah says, you have created a den of robbers in the temple. What do you mean, Jeremiah? How have I created 
Have we created, Israel must think, a, a den of the temple of God? How have we done that? Well, maybe it's because you go out during the week and you loot people and then you return on Sabbath to the temple. Uh, maybe it's because you live a life during the week in which you take advantage of others, you exploit the weak, you curse people under your breath, you live a life devoid of love, you live a life in pursuit of yourself, and then you retreat and come to church during Sabbath for two or three hours and you say, ah, being in this place absolves me of everything I have done. Now, of course, we do not live a life in which we recognize meritocracy in the kingdom of God. We live under the banner of grace. And as we repent, God forgives. But when we are characterized, or when Jeremiah characterizes Israel as a den of robbers, these are unrepentant people living uh, bifurcated lives in which if you met them on a Thursday evening in Walmart, you wouldn't think they're the same person you see on Sabbath morning in the pews. And Jeremiah's scathing rebuke uh, is one that all of us understand. That perfect religious performance does not erase rotten everyday living. And we all know the stories of people, suspicious of religious folk, turned off by the church because they have watched people who have lived lives in which they take advantage and they pillage and they persecute people during the week only to come back and retreat to church on Sabbath as if it absolves them of the ways in which they have lived. And God is telling us in Jeremiah that we ought to be concerned, yes, with the place of our worship and the community we worship in, but we should be concerned uh, so that we can live lives in which we engage with practicing the way of Jesus and the way of God through prayer, through scripture, through meditation, to practice a way that develops into concern for the least of these, for those who have nothing, for those who are left behind, for those who are suffering injustice. Jeremiah connects the way that they live and the way that they, and the way that they worship. It's inseparable. And I want to tell you this morning that the call of God for me, and I believe for you wherever you are, is that we live our lives according to the map. What's the map, Andreas? According to God's revealed map. We live our lives according to the words uh, of God. We live our lives so that we can pursue divine delight. And then with the map, we also live a life in which our hearts are compassed after the word of God, where the spirit of God dwells deeply inside of us so that we don't read just dead letters, but they become alive and make a difference in our lives. And so I pray that as we continue through this journey in the book of Jeremiah, that you would take time to ask yourself, Am I living a life right now where I don't even know that there is a map? Maybe you're watching for the first time and 
you were saying, listen, I, don't, I barely go to church. My grandparents took me and I haven't been for years. And maybe you didn't know there was a map. Perhaps your commitment today is to get to know the map, to start reading the map. And others of you, perhaps you have been in church for years. You know the map. You read the map as a child. You sang songs about the map. But now you have been living a life in which the compass has not been working. You've been living a life in which the Spirit of God has not been working inside of you to produce the works of justice, to produce the love towards the poor and the left behind and the lost and the least. And today you might need to ask God to compass your heart to his map so that individually and then together as a community, as a Walla Walla uh, church family, as a larger body of Christians in Christ, we might live toward the hope of delight and the hope of love and justice that God calls us to. Amen. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.